0: We all know 2020 is a complete disaster and everything is terrible. Anybody who has listened to a couple episodes of this podcast knows I have a tendency to creep into dark places and I use this space at the top of the show to talk myself out of them. But not today. Today, I want to talk about things I've noticed this year that have made me, and I'm sure many others, feel pretty good. Now, I would say in general... Playwrights are sort of set up to feel a sense of competition with each other. This can happen in grad schools where just getting in is a competition and then the programs themselves can be fraught with competition for awards, scholarships, the love of professors. Even if you don't attend grad school, you are still essentially competing with your contemporaries to get into this conference or that conference, win this award or that award. All these things have winners, so those who don't win must be losers and nobody wants to be a loser, so we compete. I really hate that we are pitted against each other. It's my least favorite part of the world of playwriting. Because of this, whether we realize it or not, we are often left looking out for ourselves and not doing what we can to help other playwrights in our circles. I know not all playwrights are like this. And I'm not here to drag other writers because the real point of this is how I feel the system pits us against each other, but this year I have seen some incredible examples of playwrights stepping up for others in incredibly generous ways. Early on in the pandemic, both Lauren Gunderson and Young Jean Lee were live streaming playwriting classes for free for anybody. And if you couldn't attend live, the streams were available for viewing later. That's just flat out awesome and completely generous. I mean, these two brilliant and successful writers gave their time and shared their knowledge with nothing in return. Paula Vogel has spent weeks producing a reading series titled Bard at the Gate. The plays in the series were chosen by Paula from hundreds and hundreds of scripts she has read and felt were overlooked and deserved a wider audience. She used her own platform to elevate these plays and playwrights. And then there's Jeremy O'Harris. Jeremy donated thousands of dollars to create a microgrant fund for other playwrights. Over 150 writers received $500 each, which is a small amount to some, but rent and groceries for others. He didn't stop there. As most people know, Jeremy came out of Yale a couple years ago and exploded onto the off-Broadway scene with a couple plays titled Daddy and Slave Play. The latter made it to Broadway, received a dozen Tony nominations, and earned Jeremy a huge financial deal with HBO. And he is doing something unprecedented with that money. He got HBO to give him a slush fund that he's spending on producing other people's work. How amazing is that? Just during this pandemic, he's taken his fame and funding and got artists paid. And he's using the rest of it to elevate the writing of other playwrights. I am so moved and inspired by these writers using their clout to help get recognition for others. I wish this spirit would spread and we could push back against a system built to pit us against each other. You don't need to be the most produced playwright in America or fabulously wealthy to help other writers. We are on a continuum and all of us are trying to get somewhere with our writing. We can each reach a hand out and give a hand up. I hope you'll take inspiration from these writers and do what you can for playwrights in your own circles and hopefully the hand you need will be there for you when you need it. Welcome to the subtext. I am your host, Brian James Polak. This month, I speak to the wonderful Kate Hamill. Before we get to that conversation, I want to thank those of you who have responded to my sad and desperate pleas to rate and comment on the subtext in Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you get your podcasts. Giving us five stars doesn't just inflate my ego, it also helps the podcast get noticed. So thank you for that. And while I'm talking about it, please do share this with people in your life who might be interested. And if you're a teacher, Assign the subtext to your students, or put it on a reading or listening list because each episode is like a masterclass in how to navigate the theater world. All right, on to the conversation. Kate Hamill was named 2017's Playwright of the Year by the Wall Street Journal. She has been one of the 10 most produced playwrights in the country three seasons running. In both 2017 and 2018, she wrote two of the top 10 most produced plays. She's obviously incredibly talented, but you will also learn she's a pretty great person too. Here's my conversation with Kate recorded over Zoom a couple of weeks after the presidential election in November of 2020.
1: It just is what it is right now. Yeah. I just wrote, yeah, I I'm with you. I just wrote like a Zoom play and the whole time I was like I'm writing a play for Zoom. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I thought we would be back to theater, but it's interesting, but I was like, oh, I thought,
0: I thought we would be in a different place. How, how, <laughs> how did you feel about your Zoom play?
1: I actually l- liked it because it was, it's like set during a Zoom meeting, so I could make lots of like Zoom-specific jokes. So there's a character who like can't figure out how to get off of mute. So, but I was like, this is a joke that's funny right now in, or at least kind of funny in November, 2020. And next year it might just be like, I don't know, making a joke about AOL Instant Messenger or something. So it was like satisfying, but also like, I was like, well, this is extremely specific.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's gonna be interesting to see what the new world holds in store for us. You know, I mean, Zoom isn't going to go away. No. Uh, but I wonder if producing theater over Zoom is going to, is going to go away.
2: Could
1: we, could we be in more of a, like, uh, complete unknown, <laughs> complete question mark?
0: Yeah. My husband,
1: my husband's also like, he's an actor and a director. And we're both like theater people. and We were reflecting the other day that our, sense of humor has become so dark and gallows because all of a sudden, not only everything in the world, Jesus Christ, but all of a sudden, like any kind of plan just feels so insane.
0: I know, <laughs> Our whole I business, know.
1: business is just like kind
0: of in flames. Yeah, and, and, and were you in, you had, you had, two, you had two shows canceled, right?
1: Well, at this point I've had I was supposed to have five world premieres this year.
2: Okay. And oh. Oh.
1: yeah. And one got to a world premiere and then I had many. Some of them had like production many productions lines up, but they've all been at least postponed. So I, I don't know how many in total, but it was five and one got out. It premiered February, mid February. <laughs>
0: Right. Okay. So it opened. Were you in? Like, where, where were you in process when when the lockdown started in March?
1: So I had just finished um, Dracula. It closed March eighth mm-hmm. in at Classic Stage. That was the one I one I squeaked out.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: um, before everything shut down, and I got on a red eye that night to go um, to the first week of rehearsal of what was going to be the world premiere of The Scarlet Letter at South Coast Rep. And I was supposed to be there for like three days, be there for the beginning for table work and then fly to Minneapolis for the world premiere of Emma. Those two plays were happening like a week and a half apart. So I was scheduled to do like 14 plane trips between Minneapolis and Costa Mesa in like two months and i had scheduled everything very very carefully and then on my it was the plane trips were just terrifying i mean it was starting to get just really really real and i remember like even the the stewardesses and the stewards looked scared and i was like this is not good and especially the one to minneapolis i was in behind a woman who was coughing, and it was before masks or any of that, and I was like, this is just, I, I remember sitting there going, I just made a terrible mistake. Mm. <laughs> just scheduling so many flights and thinking everything's gonna be fine. And um, so we were in our first week of rehearsals for Emma, and then everything basically got closed down in California, basically. Scarlet Letter was still in process, but, both the theater and I were like, it's probably not going to get to the, they thought they might get to filming, but probably not to an opening night. So I was like, okay, I'm gonna stay in Minneapolis. So, and then Minneapolis started to shut down. And we we had gotten to, I think like six days, or no, maybe three or four days into the Emma process and all of a sudden we were in rehearsal and all of our cell phones started buzzing all around the table because Broadway shut down Mm. then the Guthrie cut uh the Guthrie cancelled all of their running shows and they were like okay maybe I think you know maybe Emma can still go on or at least get to filming and uh so for like four or five days we were the only people (laughs) in the Guthrie (laughs) us and my director, <laughs> Meredith McDonough and our plucky little cast. And it was, you know, that building is so, it's like, like a, an ocean liner, it's so big. And there were like 10 of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that, you know, and unsurprisingly that, like we were, you know, it, it came, it, it was going to be postponed. And then uh, we were, as we were like filing out for it to be postponed for a week, we heard that the governor of Minneapolis had said, or the governor of Minnesota had said, no more gatherings, more than 10 people. And there are like 10 people in that cast. So we were mm-hmm. like, hmm. And then my husband had had a clopening um, night of Amadeus at Syracuse stage. He flew out to Minneapolis. Cause uh, at that point we were like, you know, what are we gonna do? And then we were in Minneapolis in the Guthrie's housing for two months. And we were supposed to go on a honeymoon in Italy in May because we got married in January. Oh, but that didn't happen. So we used our honeymoon money and we bought a car in Minneapolis that we drove.
0: (laughs) Your honeymoon was a COVID road trip to New York.
1: Yes, our honeymoon was a. (laughs) It was like the first car we've ever bought. I mean, we're New Yorkers. Why would we ever have cars? And it was so funny when we bought it. It, again, like it was just hit, hitting different states in different ways in Minnesota It was like being a time traveler from the future coming from New York and being totally freaked out about it and The the car salesman was like, oh you kids, you know, it's your first purchase together Do you want a big red bow? And we were like, you don't understand. This is a refugee Vehicle we didn't even bargain with the guy. We were like, yeah, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're gonna put it on a car. Yes. Yes <laughs> buying a car so that's where I was, and then we drove back to New York.
0: Well, congratulations.
1: Thank you. congratulations to you
0: right, right, right. Um yeah, I remember this is when i've been I've been following you on on Twitter for a while, but because we you know quasi worked together on that episode I made in April, yes. I've been paying closer attention. Uh, yeah. To you, and so I've been—I kind of was following your saga of being in Minneapolis this whole time and staying, uh, sort of being stuck there. I guess. Uh, yeah,
1: I mean, it was so lovely of the Guthrie to like let us stay, and we were relieved. But it was—you know—we were away from where our home is in New York. Our families are in New York, so it was even though we were relieved to be away, it was also like we felt guilty and.
0: Yeah. yeah. Did you grow up in New York?
1: Uh, I grew up in upstate New York, so I grew up in like the Finger Lakes region in a very small town called Lansing, New York.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I grew up on a farm. My parents were not farmers, but I grew up on a farm, and uh, then I I've lived in the city for I think fifteen years. 15 yeah, years,
0: yes. yeah. When does one get to really consider themselves a New Yorker? Like how long? What's the what's the time before you can claim it?
1: The first time you ignore a fight on the subway. I don't know. Uh, no, uh, I think I've read somewhere it's like eight years, which seems long. Yeah. But I guess. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I lived. I lived in New York in a hotel for like nine months and really felt like. Yeah, I'm a New Yorker.
1: That is. That is yeah. really. I think. I think that that is every month it, in a hotel is like a year. So. You get it. You get it. It's like a dog year.
0: Yeah, but I. But as I got to know New Yorkers over the years, I really learned that my, my experience was so not New York because I was I was there for work and it was a long term. It was not a theater thing. It was a like a day job thing, and uh, right. I was on an expense account, and I I was taking cabs everywhere, right? And, and like the few times I stepped onto the subway was like, ooh, this is like, <laughs> right? I'm on a subway.
1: That's definitely a certain strata of New Yorker. It just never ever. Yeah.
0: Takes this sure. Day, yeah. I, I'm definitely yeah. not of that strata, though. I was just lucky <laughs> to temporarily have uh, a per diem that I wasn't spending on food, so I'd spend it on cab rides. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. And I ju- and I was staying in the Roosevelt Hotel, uh, which I just, oh yeah just closed now. They just shut it down. Yeah. R.I.P. Yeah. I think it's.
1: I, all those
0: places it's going to be interesting who knows yeah. so back theater? in so back in lansing yes uh, lansing, New York. was there so did you grow up in like an artistic or theatrical house like how did you come upon theater as a child only
1: only theatrical in that there was lots of o'neill style drama Um, oh, no okay, uh,
0: okay.
1: Uh, <laughs> no uh they i my parents are not um theater people my They are are, um, big, they're both writers. Uh, My dad's a poet and taught English for a long time. And my mom was a grants writer and also got her uh, doctorate actually. They're both much more educated than I am um, in English. And they had an enormous family and so they moved sort of out to the country and um, In this, I just got lucky in this teeny tiny school that I went to, there's this woman, Cynthia Howell, and she ran not only all the music programs, she ran like basically an after school theater thing. And I just, it just... I was like a very, very high energy, highly emotional child, and super sensitive, and probably as a one out of six children, desperate for attention. So it, it all, it all went right in the old veins. And um,
0: how did this, Yeah, that's how, how did it started. This high, how did this high energy, high emotional state manifest for you as a kid?
1: Oh man, I just. I was just, um, I, I was just the kid who like, you know, I, I had, a, I, I didn't operate at less than a 10. So if I were having, if I was crying, I was really crying. If I was happy, I was really happy. If I was having a temper tantrum, I was having like a crazy tantrum. So, um, you know, uh, like the confines of school were sometimes sort of difficult for me. And my parents also funnily didn't enough believe in TV. So I also was in the middle of the country with like nowhere to channel all my crazy energies. And I was not, some of my siblings were like sporty and I was absolutely not sporty. So that's that's how it all came out. But yeah, I was just um, like, even as a little kid, I was kind of a lot, <laughs> so I had no chill.
0: Right, right. Where yeah. where are you in the pecking order of siblings?
1: I'm number five of six. Okay. I am not. I am not the baby. I am. Uh, I I was almost the baby. Uh, yeah. I'm number five.
0: Six. Maybe not the baby, but a baby.
1: I was a baby. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I was one great. of the, one of the babies. Yes.
0: Yeah.
1: It's funny because they still, you know, my and my parents divorced now, and I have. Um, it's all blended, but uh, my my parents will still sometimes call my little brother and I the kids, and we're both like, you know, grown adults,
0: with right?
1: Yeah, siblings and stuff. Uh, so partners, and but it's just that my oldest sibling is like 15 years older than me. So, what?
0: How? How do any of your other siblings uh, have lives in the arts?
1: Um, they, I would say a lot of them are artistic and have sort of creative, um like outlets, but they're not, they have real jobs with benefits and salaries. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, A couple of, a couple of them are computer engineers, uh, uh, communications. My sister's a science teacher. My other brother's a lawyer. So they're, Mm -hmm. they're really respectable.
0: (laughs) So are you. So are you. Oh, wow. Right. (laughs) I mean, do you feel that though? Do you feel like you're, the oddball out of the group? Do you feel like your work isn't as respected as like a traditional day job?
1: Oh, no, they're actually all really lovely. I'm just sort of poking fun. I mean, uh, my family, I've been lucky, has always been really supportive. And for the first, definitely for the first couple of years, it was pretty, as is traditional for us scrappy theater kids, it was pretty, you know, like unimpressive. So, Mm. (laughs) um, and they always were like, pretty cool about that, including when I had to, I mean, there were times when I had like five different day jobs that were all like varying degrees of whatever, um, uh, drudgery or grueling, or uh, there were five degrees of grueling, but, um, no, they've, they've always been really lovely about that. And, um, yeah.
0: Did you, when you, uh, did you go to school? Did you go to school, like college, to study theater?
1: I did. I went to Old Ithaca College, also upstate, um, for, and I got my BFA in acting. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was um, like lovely and also full of, you know, it was it was it was uh, theater school and all yeah. that associated silliness. I, if I could go back in time, I wonder if I wouldn't study something else when I was so young and go to graduate school, but that ship has sailed.
0: Were you, I mean, were you locked in already? Like, this is what I want to do as an 18 year old going away to school?
1: Yeah, I was um, pretty, I, I, I was pretty determined. I had come from this very small town and um, some difficult family circumstances, and theater was very much my outlet out. So I was very, very determined to like make a life for it, for myself. And um, yeah, I, I, I was, I was pretty set, pretty ambitious.
0: Why do you think it was? Why do you think it was theater that became your outlet instead of painting or? whatever like any other thing you know playing soccer or whatever any other thing people do like why was it theater?
1: You know I think theater offers a lot of catharsis and um, empathy building and um, it's a way to express yourself while also probably um, and expose yourself while also sort of escaping yourself and there have been times in my life definitely when I really just wanted to escape myself, but I I, I find the catharsis part of it and the part of connection with other people really um, wonderful. And I also, you know, uh, there's a theater upstate called the Hangar Theater and they have like kids theater. So I did some of their kids programs when I was starting out and it was just like such a, the sense of community and the connection that you have with like other oddballs when you're a kid and you first start, it that's those are the drugs that I keep coming back to in the theater is like the community the catharsis the and the empathy building when I when I go see a show that really really moves me I just feel something break open me in a nice way and it's yeah and Mm it's it's I I mean it's it's fun it's still like when it's really great it's still fun and it was fun
0: Did you have this sense as a, you know, growing up, going into Mm -hmm. school, like in high school, of this need to escape, this yearning for escapism? Like there was something you needed? Okay.
1: I was a very, very depressed teenager. Um, Very, very depressed. And so, uh, which I've been pretty open about. Um, Because of that, something that sort of got me out of myself was really useful.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And was it performance? Were you writing it all at the time? I was
1: never writing at the time. I didn't think I would ever be a playwright.
0: <laughs> oh yeah?
2: I
1: just, I just stumbled into it. Yeah. Um, I I always loved reading and I liked writing, Um, but I was not, nah, I, I didn't like know what a playwright did or how to become one. Um, certainly until I went to undergrad. And by the time I was in undergrad, the program that I went to was very much like pick a lane, pick a lane, pick a lane, pick a lane. So I think I, and I was very, very serious, very serious. I did not much have much of a sense of humor to be perfectly honest. So I really um, swallowed the, what was the line of thinking at Mm -hmm. that time, which is like, I am not gonna, um, you know, even step a toe into something else um but so I had but I never felt like a yen to be a writer because I didn't think writers were people like me when I pictured a write a playwright or a writer I thought I don't know I thought of someone who looked like my dad or George Bernard Shaw or something and then I, I I got to New York and was working and I I knew I was very good friends with some playwrights um and uh i I was working with playwrights, but I still was never like that seems like something I could do
0: <laughs> was it something I you, just didn't see was it. it was it something you wanted to do, and you just felt like that's not like that's not my lane, so I'll just stick to the thing that i do
2: um it's
1: so funny to go back and think, it, it, it felt like something I wanted to do but thought I didn't have the follow through to do. And I think before you um, build whatever kamikaze crazy writing practice you end up building, at least for me, it just felt so daunting. Like how can you write a whole play? And now I know yeah. like it, it sort of takes a long time and you break it in chunks or whatever. But until I wrote my first one, I just felt like, how would I ever write? whatever 150 pages that just seems insane um and uh again I maybe I just felt like I wasn't a sufficiently I don't like I wasn't like I I, again I come from a family my parents are both like English PhDs so I just felt like well I'm I'm not that person you know like I don't Mm -hmm. have that background I'm not like an academic from that background and I I guess I felt um, intimidated in that way.
0: So what changed?
1: Well, I was work. I came to the city with $300 and a suitcase.
0: <laughs> Classic story.
1: <laughs> yes. And managed not to get killed my first couple of months. And, um, I, uh, <laughs> was a bit of a wreck really. I, I didn't, I was not like a, a streetwise, you know, 21 year old. I was sort of, very dumb and uh I but I was working as an actor um, especially at the time I, I looked quite young even for my age and I played a lot of my like, teenagers or whatever so I was working and I got my equity card and whatever and for a couple of years it was sort of fine and what happened to me is I once I got out of playing basically kids I was started auditioning for these women role young women And I just hated them so often. I was just sitting in a room with like 400 other women or whatever, um, competing to play someone's, like the male protagonist's wife or girlfriend or prostitute. Mm -hmm. Um, The person who's, and it was so often the women weren't funny or interesting or weird. They were just sort of like, either helpful or sexy or you know whatever sweet and it was super male gazy, and the stories themselves were not um i definitely not feminist but definitely but not um not even female-centered and i was just so frustrated in the meantime this program that i'd gone to in school Uh, like many programs, there were lots and lots and lots of women there. And I just saw women like dropping out of the business all around me who I had gone to school with because there wasn't any opportunity for them in not even just in acting and directing and playwriting. Like it just was, and this was, I would say I started feeling like this around circa 2009, 2010. So obviously the business was different, but this Mm -hmm. was very, very true. And I just got pissed off. (laughs) And I was like, why is this why why am i someone who is a feminist and politically active settling for this or like what am i doing with my life i i had a sort of i came very 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 close to working for the obama campaign i got to sort of my third interview with, with them and i would have had to move to chicago and i would have just given up theater and worked in politics and it didn't wow. happen but but then what didn't happen, and that was in 2008, for about a year, I was like, you know, what am I doing? Why am I auditioning to play, I don't know, Bikini Girl number two? It's just uh, stupid. And um, I'd written a couple of little short plays and gotten a tiny bit of attention for it, and I probably was seeking, like, chasing that a little bit. But more than that, I just was like, well, if I want, um, and if I want feminist work, and I'm not, at all a director. I'm not interested in that and I'd be terrible at it. I might have to write something. I was writing for my day job anyways. And I was especially interested in the classics because they are these cultural touchstones. They do like define us. If I say, some, you know, so and so's a Hamlet or he's acting like Macbeth, like we understand so much of our universal languages, the classics, but so often those are through the male gaze. And even at that point, like, female stories, like Jane Austen, for example, which is where I started, were told through the male gaze. Every play version of Jane Austen at that time was the most produced word by John Jory, who's a man. And I was like, very frustrated, and I split a bottle of wine one night with my friend Andrew Snickles, who at that time was co-founding a theater company, and I bet her $100 that I could try to write like a new feminist Jane Austen classic, and um, because I just felt like, oh, um, Austen was a good place to start, she's really interested in social class, she's interested in hypocrisy. I really wanted to make something that was funny and not just like sort of about romance and um, that, that uh, was highly theatrical and ensemble driven and I bet a $100 and at the time I was very, very poor. So I woke up the next morning and was like, well, I guess I have to write this.
0: (laughs) And I need $100, so. (laughs) Yeah. I
1: mean, well, the thing is I wrote her a check for $100 and said, you get to cash it.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah. You need to keep your $100. I
1: I highly recommend as an incentive. is being like, you get to cash this. And then that's how I started. And um, much to my surprise, it became like a whole hybrid career. But it started with, I was just... I loved the thing so much, and I was so pissed off. And the combination of those things is a, is a helpful combination
0: for me. What, what was different? So if you're working from the same source material to adapt mm-hmm. this Jane Austen, what's different about your adaptation from somebody else's adaptation, say, uh man's?
1: Well, uh, I take like sort of a radical approach to adaptation. I, um, I don't like making something that's just like a, you know, sort of very faithful thing on it. I really want to create, I really come at it from a new play lens and think about it as a collaboration between myself and an author who's currently dead. Mm. So I put a lot of it's a lot of just complete reconstruction and complete rewriting. Sometimes I'm trying to meld fairly seamlessly with the original person, and sometimes I'm not at all. Um, and that's changing plot, character, dialogue, um, and especially the lens is important to me. So I often come from a thematic lens of a so- of something that I think is extremely socially relevant and relevant to me. Um, that I'm trying to color the whole thing through like you know uh sense and sensibility is how do you um uh how do you get through a world where women are where everyone but especially women are punished both for obeying the rules and breaking the rules and I really wanted everyone to in the audience to feel complicit in that and feel how these women are judged so I created this sort of chorus of these gossips and but every play I do has a sort of sort of thematic question I would say that, and normally I don't quite know the answer to it, and the whole play is trying to figure
2: out the answer
0: what so what was the what were the other versions of these plays doing that was unsatisfying to you
1: well <laughs> I mean, I often just felt like they were just. Basically, you should have just read the novel, you know, like, I I don't mean to be mean because people people can just write very faithful things and they can do it beautifully. And it's not uh, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just not my personal taste. It's just like something that challenges nothing and is a sort of copy paste version of it. it just feels for me, it's not interesting. And it also feels slightly, um, for me, if I were to do something like that, it would be cynical because then I would just be doing it because I'm like, oh, you know, people like this about the novel, or whatever. Why don't I make the, I don't know, why don't I make something I think is gonna uh, make f- people feel good in that way. But I, I ha- yeah, the sort of copy paste of it and the sort of like making very sure not to Put any, not to put unexpected things in, not to, not to, uh, not to uh, interfere with the source material too much. And I'm like, why? Why? There's no reason the novel still exists or the original thing still exists. Why do a new version of it unless you're going to really challenge it? And it's interesting because, you know. These days I don't see a lot of adaptations because I try not to be influenced by other people's. So I always worry that I'm gonna wildly offend someone who probably they did something great and I would like it. But for me, the face, the very faithful adaptation is just not my bag.
0: So what what do you hold on to as like uh, touchstones or something to to hold yourself up (laughs) against so you can say this adaptation of emma is still emma you know you talk about how you give yourself a lot of freedom but what do you what are the things you feel like you need to hold on to um
1: whatever's dramaturgically interesting so emma's an interesting one because emma i was like you know i do fundamentally wanted to be a story about someone who comes from a lot of privilege, recognizing that she can sort of, that, that she can do a lot of harm, but I also didn't, um, so that's like an interesting relevant story, but I also um, wanted to make it about a woman who's born in the wrong time. It's sort of the tragedy of woman before she can work. So she has a ton of energy and a ton of smarts, and she has nowhere to put it. So that's something that I'm like wrestling with. Um, you know, I have this version of the Odyssey that I'm working on and the Odyssey for me was like, it's very different from the original, but I was like, if, if you personally, and a, and a civilization has gone through something really, really, really terrible, really traumatic, can you ever go back to who you were as a mm-hmm. sort of post-traumatic thing. And there's strains of that definitely within the Odyssey itself. And then I'm just um, trying to take what is dramaturgically interesting to me from the original and sort of weave it into this thing. And sometimes, yeah. It, I, but I, it differs from thing to thing.
0: I think, I think the Odyssey is a good example because mm. it is sort of like a classic hero's journey. And yeah. as long as you have to me anyway it seems like as long as you have this central character who's going on a long journey and then interfacing with different and weird people or beings or things along the way yeah you can call that the odyssey right yeah. like you can you can change all of these different elements but it's still the odyssey and so for me somebody who doesn't write adaptation i can wrap my head around that but then yeah looking at adapting a classic novel and mm-hmm. applying the same kind of freedom i feel like is harder mm-hmm. for me to imagine which is why i'm i'm very curious about like these things you'd hold on to like from jane austen to still say it's, yeah. this is an adaptation of, a, of jane austen's you know story
1: well i often ask myself like why does the world need this thing you know why why I do this basically because um, and uh, because if if it's just to put a new version of I don't know like Vanity Fair out in the world I don't know that the world needs that except if I'm trying to push the envelope on it some or challenge it in some new way or um, sort of kick up like open people's minds a little bit because otherwise I don't know that the world needs it. And maybe the world doesn't need it anyways, but <laughs> I like try to, you know, especially for me, I'm trying to work out through these like, um, and I, I do write new pieces as well, but like uh, write, uh, when I'm doing the adaptations, it's very much like, um, again, because these are these cultural touchstones, trying to use these old stories to explore new ideas and explore how they can sort of stretch. Because I feel like if we keep on getting locked into, I'll use one I'm never gonna adapt ever, like Jane Eyre, if we're always like, Jane Eyre always means Jane Eyre and it never evolves and I'm just trying to do that version that is very, very faithful, then you're just, you're, you're not, you're sort of um, sealing it in this tomb instead of like letting it run around and people can't see themselves in it in the have same, you, in, in, a, in a more boundary crossing way.
0: Right, have you, found pushback from audiences ever who come to one one of your shows and are, are expecting right oh to, to see the thing that they grew up reading and loving you know oh, um, yes. performed on stage what have those interactions <laughs> been like
1: i mean it's funny because they're ones that are much more um nostalgically close to people's hearts like little women was a big one little women in My Little Women, Joe is not straight. She's just not, she's not straight. Like it's whatever, she's not straight um, because I just was not that interested in it. And in uh, Pride and Prejudice was another one when I did that because people just know that very, very well. And I, I do get like angry, angry emails.
2: Mm. <laughs> and my
1: email's on my website because I'm sort of like, I want to work towards a democratic people theater. I want to be able to, if someone needs to reach me for something, I need like, whatever I I keep it. I keep on debating to get off, but my personal emails on my website and I just got emails on both of those that were like, one of them was like literally started out, dear Ms. Hamill. How could you, you know? And often like, for every one of those, there's a lovely response. Or people see themselves. Or they're like, it opens their minds. Or they enjoy it. And when they hate that kind of stuff, like, so it's all, or younger people are more into whatever. All that is balanced out. But oh yeah, people get especially the classics. People have this very high bound idea of how to do it, quote unquote, right. And if you're um, sort of kicking down the door and inviting us, all of us in they, they really don't. Some people get very, very, very angry at you.
0: <laughs> have, you have you found yourself stuck in any uh, terrible post-show, live oh, yeah. discussions with audiences?
1: Yeah, although it's funny, I would say, oh, well, Mansfield Park, um, which is, I'm doing all the Jane Austen's in order, and that was in, in, uh, at Northlake Theatre, Uh, just outside of Chicago. And that play is about how the Regency, all that beautiful stuff you see in the Regency, all that Jane Austen stuff, 80% of that money came from colonialism and slavery. Mm. So that play is about like that. And there were some super nasty talks on that because people were not super pleased to confront that. but it's funny, like, I would say that happens as much in new places as anything. I had a workshop of this play, the prostitute play at Signet Theater in San Diego, and it's about a very, very famous courtesan uh, in England. And this woman afterwards got into this huge argument with me about, like, if, if sexual basically could sexual harassment exist for sex workers? And I was like, I mean, it's the same pushback you get on everything, except it's maybe weighted a little bit more by like, but I read the book, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right, yeah. Um, uh, but I think everyone sometimes, I never mind talkbacks because I find them interesting, even if you argue or you get unsolicited notes, but mm-hmm. yeah.
0: I, I, I love them because I like the exercise in navigating people. <laughs> Yes, like, and, and I know that it's. I I know that this is going to be a half an hour, right? So yeah, it, how bad can it get? And and I find I just find it interesting just to hear what people are going to say, especially the ones that are going to come at you. Yeah. Um. Except for one time, I did one where, uh, I the I was sitting in the back row, and the, and they told me there's going to be a post show conversation, mm-hmm. and I was like, well, of course there always is. It's fine, and and immediately after the show ends so they bow and then the lights change a little bit and then you hear the over the god mike brian Polak is here and he's gonna now talk and they put one chair out <laughs> and i walk out i walk out and it's a theater of like 150 people and it was full and i'm like oh there's no i'm gonna be sitting here by myself
1: so oh I to- no
0: yeah, so so all that sort of comfort that I normally feel because you've got somebody kind of running, running interference for you. Yeah. Not there, not there at all. And I was alone. I was alone on stage, and I just looked around. I was like, okay, here we go. My yeah. God. That's
1: like, that's like in a nightmare.
0: You'd look down, and you'd have
1: no clothes on. Right.
0: Oh, yeah. Like- <laughs> oh, totally, totally, totally. Yeah, I looked down and noticed I had clothes on, which is how I knew it was real. It's and, real. Right, Oh. Damn it, wow, um, <laughs> that's horrible, but you're up to the like you're then you're like it's the mercy of the audience at that point, and you're like, and uh I got really lucky that i that happened to me one time, and the audience ended up being uh, okay um that's great it's just navigating the people who don't uh understand the art form talk like having to sort of like talk talk it through with them yeah um, which was which is interesting, but anyway uh. I want to go back to when you wrote that first. You wrote that first. What was the? First, you wrote the first adaptation because you had you, you challenged yourself and you made a hundred dollar bet. Yeah. And
2: then
0: and then you wrote it. Um, yeah. So how did how did that change things for you?
1: I mean, strangely enough, it it ended up changing my life. Um, it was it got. Produced in 2014 off off Broadway at the Sheen Center, um, and I played uh, Marianne, who's the emotional one. In my version, she's kind of bipolar, to be honest. She's so uh, like not she's she's extreme. And um, uh, my friend Andres, who was the person I made that bet to, played Eleanor Dashwood, who's the heroine. And um, it's just this thing that occasionally happens, pure dumb luck, like Ben Bradley came to it, he gave it a critic's pick, and that just launched like, the Dallas Theater Center at that point, they had announced the Sense and Sensibility, but they were still looking for the version. So even before it went off, off-Broadway, they had like, through a friend of a friend, um, through Davis McCallum, who had done the first public reading, of it hosted it they had found the script and they signed on to it and all of a sudden I was like oh I should like I got a playwriting agent and then the because it was a critic's pick it was remounted in 2016 and in the meantime I kept writing and stuff just started happening but it literally like changed my life I certain I eventually (laughs) it took a long time like you know I, I kept my day job Copywriting till 2016, but eventually I was able to just um, uh, live off of the playwriting and the acting, and um, n- you know, not not a not an extravagant lifestyle, but uh, I've I've kept that up for a while. And uh, since 2016, then it it just changed. It just gave me this whole new career, so it was quite unexpected. And then. You know, they they sort of build.
0: When when did you realize that it was re-envisioning these classics? That was sort of your 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 forte.
2: Um,
1: I don't know. I mean, I guess I feel like um, the
2: it's is it, something is it like you think- did
0: you did one and it, and mm-hmm. it, and it worked well so it just sort of beget the next one
1: um i started writing the next one before the, in between uh before the first one was produced so i i think it was just something that really interested me thank god uh because it, it turns out it, it also you know was something that people connected to so um It just sort of came about uh, organically it was like something that i was really interested in so i kept doing it and doing it and doing it doing it and then i kind of got known for it um and yeah that's just i I kind of fell into it which is ridiculous (laughs)
2: um
1: uh i was i had joined uh jose rivera jose rivera so kindly when i was like a tiny baby playwright with like nothing I ain't nothing, you know, uh, took me into his writing group um, that he was running at the time. And so there's where I started um, really turning out like a, like a weekly thing started. It became a bigger practice for me, even though at the time, of course I was, you know, um, certainly I wasn't getting produced yet or anything, but then it's when it became a practice. And then it's when, um, yeah, I just became really passionate about it and I was lucky in that I was doing it in kind of vacuum because I had not I didn't see a lot of other people's adaptations. I didn't have a lot I didn't know what other people were doing or not doing. And so um in retrospect, that gave me a lot of time to develop my own sort of attack to it without thinking about and also it just seemed ridiculous. It was like 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 for me because again I didn't take myself seriously at all it was playwriting seemed like something I was doing for myself but I never thought any of it would get produced ever Mm -hmm. (laughs) and no one else did either it was sort of like when I would tell other people I'm writing plays it felt like they were like oh good for you you know like (laughs) oh you're you have a you, you make dollhouses or whatever, mm-hmm. but no one, including me, it really wasn't a thing. At that point, it was not fashionable. Um, uh, in When I started doing it around like 2011, 2012, that was not the fashion. So uh, to suddenly be like, I'm writing feminist new classics was not, I was certainly not, no one thought that these would ever see the light of day including me which gave Mm -hmm. me a lot of freedom
0: at the beginning Mm -hmm. and
1: indeed some of them never did (laughs) right yeah as it is
0: and you mentioned writing like you write original work too and Mm -hmm. i I think that's i i actually saying that out loud makes me kind of cringe a little because they're all original
2: yeah
0: uh but just to distinguish right between adaptation and something that's not adaptation you've written uh plays that aren't adaptations such as the prostitute that you mentioned uh yeah do you have you because you're so known for what it is you do for writing these adaptations Mm -hmm. have you found it difficult for people to to read and consider your original work
1: Well, funnily enough, this year, it's the year of our lord coronavirus, um, I was supposed to have two, I was supposed to, praise big, I was supposed to have two premieres of original plays, so... I mean, I, you know, knock on wood that they'll happen eventually. Um, I would say it is not, it's, it's less difficult than I feared it would be getting people to work on them or whatever it is you know a new play is by its very nature more of a it doesn't have the title so quite often quite often I'm not commissioned for them I'm commissioned for like you know they the theater wants a blah and they want uh my take on blahs it's Mm -hmm. that's And um, I'm super grateful for that because that allows me to live and I would like to, you know, um, get paid for it. But um, now it's changing in the last year. It's changing. But for a couple of years, it was like I would get commissioned to do an adaptation. But the new play stuff is stuff that I, I really had to
0: work on on my own. Yeah. I was, I started to think about that when you mentioned before about being an undergrad and this idea of you have a lane, you have a lane mm-hmm. to stay in. And I understand how sometimes this industry will, will kind of be that way. Yeah. And, uh, I'm glad to hear that you don't have as much sort of like, uh, pushback with that.
1: No. And I feared it. And I, I, you know, like I'm super, thank God I I love that adapting or I'd be, I would just be unhappy because thank God it is, I'm grateful for it all. I don't, it's great. I'm really grateful that anyone commissioned me in the whole bit. Um, yeah, I, you know, because I didn't go to like school for playwriting, sometimes I feel a little bit, um, and I think that's just my own complex is sometimes I feel a bit like oh did I miss out on something wouldn't it have been fun to take classes on this stuff and Mm um I I am sometimes sad that I didn't have that experience or that I didn't have the experience of like I don't know. Every time I, because I had to build my own thing, my own like attack towards things, I I constantly, I do have like a thing in the back of my head, like, am I doing this wrong?
2: Mm.
1: (laughs) Um, And now, you know, it's been whatever, eight years, it's okay, but especially at the beginning, I also had to learn like what a playwright's rights are. And, you know, that was an interesting journey for me because I had, worked with new playwrights as an actor but it's very different as we know being on the inside of it and also the pressure that you've come under is different
2: mm-hmm.
0: really different other mm-hmm. times when you're writing that you're writing specifically thinking as an actor as well um i mean that for you for you per- to perform a role that you're writing
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm quite often in them, I, and it's because I, I, you know, like, I like still doing it, it is a hybrid thing, I feel like it keeps me humble, I'm constantly, you know, I'm able to say to my cast, like, I'm gonna be right there with you, if this, if this part of it sucks, I'm also gonna suffer with you, I'm sort of in the arena with you, but I also love it, so I just,
2: keep doing
1: it um uh it mm, sometimes when i'm writing i'm like there's sort of no part for me in this sometimes i'm like which is uh, in a way a relief um sometimes when i'm writing i'm sort of like oh there are quite often there are a lot of actors that i sort of write for often i just know their voices well and sometimes they end up getting to do it and sometimes they don't which is Mm -hmm. um just one of the tragedies of our business, but I'm sort of one of the actors I know, and I, as I go along, I'm sort of like, uh, yeah, probably I'd play this
0: person, maybe. Have you? So you go into, you go into plays not knowing if you, if you might be in it, if you as an actor might be in it, or not knowing yeah. which, which character you might end up being?
2: Yeah,
1: exactly. I mean, both Scarlet Letter and Emma, I was not going to be in those world premieres. I just, first of all, it was scheduled, but all I was like, and now I, and there were like parts I could have played in both and I'm sort of like, will I, I don't know. Yeah, um, it sort of depends. Uh, but quite often there's sort of like, at this point, I know like where I fit and I in one of my own plays and sometimes there just isn't that person.
0: Are there any roles that you've written that you hope to perform one day that you haven't? Oh
2: my goodness, um, yeah,
1: <laughs> yes. Um, I have this play about like a it's it's about basically a Nexium type thing, mm. a Nexium type situation. Um, set in a yoga
2: studio uh
1: because i once i I used to go this this sort of a tangent but i used to go to this great yoga studio in the lower east side it was awesome and it was like a little bit crunchy granola but whatever it
2: was great at the time i was going a
1: lot and they started like i started like noticing things about it, it seemed a little weird and they did a lot of retreats and I was like, whatever, it's sort of this crunchy yoga culture. And then one day I walked in to the studio and the girl checking me in, who's one of the co-owners, was like, you know, you don't really seem like a Kate to me, you seem like a rose, I'm gonna call you Rose. And I was like, because I am dumb and basically good natured, I was like, okay. And they (laughs) all started calling me Rose and I was like, oh, it's a cult. Oh, oh, I, that was like stage one. And they started being like, you should come to retreat. And I was like, huh, It <laughs> this is a cult. And I just almost, they were all really happy. And there was a moment where I was like, am I gonna find out? More? I'm not gonna find out more about this cult. But anyway, so I wrote this play and it's, um. It got me very interested in all this stuff, and I wrote this play, and there's this character in it who's sort of the chief acolyte, or the person who uh, gets the Sheila, if you will. Mm -hmm. And she very interested in that. And it was supposed to be produced this year, but it's postponed.
0: Is it postponed?
1: It's postponed. That one's postponed.
0: That's the good word. Yes. Right? We like postponed.
1: Some of them are... (laughs) Some of them I'm sure I mean some of these productions are I'm sure just gonna end up canceled, but who knows? <laughs> some yeah. of them are postponed. Some of them really are just postponed.
0: Yeah, I have a postponed and I'm I, yeah. and, and I'm like, I hope. But you just we just don't know. We just don't know. We just
1: don't know. I mean no. it's so it certainly teaches you that you can adjust to a lot of change very fast.
2: Mm-hmm. Especially
1: my husband and I uh, get our insurance through Actors' Equity. That's how we've both gotten our insurance for years. And all of a sudden we're like, oh, huh. We're going to have
0: to that, figure that out. That brings up something interesting that I'm I'm curious about. And it's a little bit yeah. sort of in the weeds, theater business talk. Sure. Um, but I'm just curious about it because you, you and Jason just did uh, a two-hander together, yes. right? In Syracuse. Yes. I got that right. Uh and, and it was filmed though, right? Yes, it was it, filmed. It wasn't like live streamed.
1: No audience, just filmed, and they 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 release it.
0: Yeah. Did you essentially, you know, rehearse it? Because it looked like it looked it looked like a theater production. Yeah. Like the set, those costumes, all of the business, the way it worked, looked like a traditional theater production. But you essentially opened it and had it filmed, and then that, and then you were done performing.
1: That's yeah. That's exactly it.
0: So. It was- As far as, like, counting Mm -hmm. towards your insurance and all of that, uh, you performed it once, but does it count if it continues to stream?
1: It it technically does. It counts as a full contract. The problem is, and I'm, this is not attacking. (laughs) Okay, whatever. It is... So the problem with the Equity League's current guidelines, which I understand were instituted because it, the, the, the Actors' Equity Health Fund is in a crazy crisis right now, um, is even with those weeks, like, it, it's, it's a virtually, it's a very difficult, I'll be shocked if almost any actors and stage managers in Actors' Equity make enough weeks for the next year's insurance mm-hmm. so even with those weeks um it doesn't matter you can't earn more than six months insurance right now so we're mm-hmm. fine for a while but we're certainly for the first time in years thinking oh like we have to we have to figure something else out
0: so, yeah.
1: yeah which is i mean a lot of people are in that boat um yeah it's,
0: in- it's- you yeah. yeah insurance it's insurance.
1: Like, Jesus. Medicare many, for all.
0: <laughs> I know. How many artists and, and performing artists have just thrown in the towel over the years simply because of insurance? Right? Oh, I
1: mean, I mean, my I, in my 20s, I went without insurance for years. Just I just hoped I wouldn't get hit by a car or whatever. But to go without it in my 30s, in the middle of a pandemic... Mm-hmm. is a lot and i just think how many people in our community have like pre-existing conditions are older it's just no. we just have to figure out something because I, I, yeah everyone th- people throw in the towel and i especially feel for like parents caretakers like i it's so hard to make it work as it is and it's it's really challenging now obviously not and to be a bummer, but...
0: Geez. I know, I know. And it's just, it's, it's hard to not be a bummer in, in 2020. Yes, as, as I just, mean, what's... I
1: find it comforting to talk about things. Sometimes I find it comforting to confront these things, so I don't find it a bummer, but <laughs> I can go a little duck,
2: is the truth. I, I,
0: how you, what, what about looking toward the future? Like, like what, what are you looking forward to?
1: I mean, I have hope, I really do, and I'm I'm not a Pollyanna about it. I know it's we're in a really tough time, but I have hope, um, not only societally, I that we did manage to vote fascists out. Yay, America, many of us. <laughs> and even though we have big structural problems, and I, you know, don't think Um, We're not gonna have problems under President Biden, and we have a lot of uh, repair to do about a lot of stuff, Um, and big systemic problems. I I have a lot of hope for the discussions that are happening right now, like um, Black Lives Matter, we see white American theater, a lot of very serious discussions about harassment and predation within the community, which are way overdue. i part i co-started this group with a bunch of women called uh, anti-harassment artists and we we work very closely in uh, in conjunction with the bipoc delegates for actors equity we're coming up with a whole bunch of pushing for a whole bunch of systems within actors equity and other unions to deal with racism, sexism, um, bullying, and how our unions police those, because it's really a workplace safety issue. Um, And that's really exciting. And I think like, it's exciting that in this pause, people aren't like, you know, just, um, there is going to be pressure to sort of shut up and accept the status quo. But instead, people are really saying, no, 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 we can't go back to how it was. We have to get better, because because we have to, it's exposing so much inequity. Um, so that's really exciting. I am, I also feel like, you know, if there's this, there are these vaccines coming, when we are allowed to do things again, people are gonna be desperate to go to the theater. It's gonna feel like a whole event. Um, and the thing that we were formed to do is create this catharsis for a community we are like unique together all together and we are uniquely suited to doing that so it should be like a really exciting time we sort of just have to get there i'm excited honestly for like the cities, like you're, you know, you're in Chicago, I'm in New York, like there is something happening where there's a lot of passion in the cities right now for um, uh, creating, like, I think there will be more support and engagement if we sort of play it right. So I'm excited about all that. And then, yeah, I feel like, um I'm working on a screenplay right now. It's like fun to explore that form. Um, I just wrote this Zoom play for primary stages and that was sort of interesting. It's interesting like artistically to explore new forms, but it's really interesting and hopeful to be like, okay, we are going through a lot of like collective trauma right now. Eventually we're all going to need to heal. And I feel like ours is an art form which actually calls on us all to be live Mm -hmm. together and heal even if it's painful and we can do it and a lot of people are activists right now who are trying to heal the process of how we do it because that's also really important and I think that's been ignored for a long time is sort of hey look at us we're sort of saying the right thing and it's like uh, you also have to make sure we're making it in a healthy way
0: I think that that's when I'm realizing, listening to you talk about all the actions you've been taking and organizing you've been doing is one of the silver, one of the few silver linings to this pause is that everybody who is unable to work has had time for activism in a way that they haven't had time, as much time because of the work, the amount of time that would be spent on on actually creating art. And so, so you're right. Yeah, we can come out of this more engaged and more organized and ready to to change these systemic issues that need to be changed
1: yeah i mean like look at i look at what we see white american theater is doing like they are really tackling some stuff that we've really taken for granted like you know when i was reading their lists i was like Oh my god 10 out of 12 it's like why did you know it's just sort of taken as a bad honor, and it's so bad for us it's yes. bad for everyone Yes. but i just they're really unbelievable activists and i just feel like there's a, a lot of people are really thinking about like these sort of traditions that a lot of us were quote unquote brought up with and that we pride ourselves on and they are nonsense <laughs> The nonsense! Yeah. You don't really have to do that.
0: Right. No. And the thing about theater, when I read that list and I saw these 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 uh, proposed changes, yeah. and I hit things like 10 out of the 10 out of 12 or or the number of work days or yeah. uh I'm like we are as theater makers are mm-hmm. always so uh, we've always been very fluid in our abilities to change and make things however. If you just change the rules, we adapt. Yeah, right? And you just make it work. You just make yeah. it work. You just forget, I'm afraid of changing because I did I've done 10 out of 12s for 25 years. Yeah, well, so what? The next spend the next 25 years doing six out of eights? Right? Well, and it, it's, it it also,
1: it's also like, aren't we supposed to be people who are really good at imagining <laughs> new things? Isn't that our thing? Aren't we supposed to be really like a little bit better at this, uh, imagining radical things? Then I don't like so. You know, isn't that supposed to be our skill set? And then I really do think a lot of us were brought up in this tradition where we're afraid to ever have needs on anything or to ever push the envelope on anything because it feels risky. But that's why it's so great to see groups really coming together to ask for things.
0: Yeah. It seems like the, something you mentioned earlier about uh, something we do well is we create stories and we kind of use empathy, you know, to sort of create change in, in the audiences. And, and it seems like specifically what, uh, we see what American theater is doing is mm-hmm. looking at ourselves. And so yeah. can we apply that to each other? Not yeah. just to the story between the, the relationship between us and the audience, but us and us Yeah, and have empathy for each other.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really inspiring. And it's really, I mean, and I think the the thing I keep telling myself is, Hey, we're all living through theater history. Someday we'll be able to talk to young kids and we will be insufferable will be so annoying like you know you guys you kids don't know but like the good thing about living through a piece of theater history is there's like uh i i read this article i think in the atlantic i don't know but i read this article that said like what we think is that after periods of crisis people will want to return to the status quo but actually history does not bear that out. History bears out after periods of crisis tend to come periods of great social change and revolution. So we might as well try to have the revolutions we want because it's coming. (laughs) So we might as well like be the drivers of positive change versus sort of try to cling to something that's now it's, it's gone. It is gone
0: onward to a new renaissance
1: onward to a new re- renaissance i mean jason my husband was saying the good news is once it's safe again it's going to be like the roaring 20s i mean everyone's just gonna go crazy so there will be lots of like energy
0: yeah i'm ready for it
1: i'm so ready i'm so ready
0: Thank you to Kate Hamill. Follow her on the social media and keep an eye out for her work, hopefully coming to a theater near you in 2021. Music from this episode is by Robert John. The theme song for the subtext is by International Pen Pal. Thank you to American Theater Magazine, a program of Theater Communications Group. This episode of the subtext is edited by me. KJ Jarbo, is the associate producer. Find us on Twitter at subtextpodcast. Email us if you want. The address is thesubtextpodcast at gmail.com. And you can call and leave a voicemail if you've got something to say. The number is 505-302-1235. Thank you for listening to the very end. The play Filling Me Up This Month is actually a short film presented by Artists Rep in Portland, Oregon. It's called Forget Me Not America, and was written by, and I'm not sure how to pronounce her last name. It was written by Josie Seed. S is in Sam, E-I-D. Josie Seed or Josie Said. And it was co-directed by Josie and Sean Lee. It is a beautiful and powerful piece of writing. Find it on Artist Rep Facebook page.